Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Hi, this is Dana Perkins, and you're listening to Switched On, the BNEF podcast. For a lot of us who look at climate and emissions data, I think many of us have a moment where they think, how are my actions having an impact on warming? It certainly happened for me a few years back, and I tried to go on a carbon diet, if you will. I started by looking at movements all around me for inspiration. There were the zero-waste folks, the vegans, the different shared economy business models, and the second-hand options. Then were the things that I needed to do to upgrade my life, like how I heat and insulate my home, and looking at my transportation choices. It was a long list, and in all honesty, it took me a year of incremental changes to evaluate all of these aspects. And guess what? I am still not personally net zero, not without carbon offsets. So where I landed at the end of this year of carbon dieting was that my actions were really a little bit less about the individual emissions gains and more about the consumer market signals I was sending to companies. It was about what I was and wasn't buying. My story is not unique, nor is it unique to people focused on climate. So today, I speak with Hugh Bromley, who focuses on consumer trends for us at BNEF. He recently wrote a research note titled, Boycotts, Bycotts, Lifestyle Choices, and Discursive Acts. Today, we're going to talk about some of this framework and the examples of things that people are doing right now in regard to these categories. Hugh's research really tends to focus on surveys, and he'll talk a bit today about what they might be telling us about what people are thinking and doing. As a reminder, BNEF does not provide investment or strategy advice, and we've got a full disclaimer at the end of the show. Also, if you get to the end of the show and you decide you want to read the research that Hugh is referring to, it can be found at BNEFGO on the Bloomberg Terminal, on BNEF.com, or via our mobile app for our subscribers. And now, let's speak with Hugh. So, Hugh, thanks for joining today. Let's start a little bit by explaining what it is that you focus on researching at BNEF, because it's not our usual technology adoption and looking at forward price curves sort of situation. What is your primary area of focus at the moment? I have had a little bit of an unusual role at BNF, as you say, where my primary focus is producing analysis on consumers. It's not marketing research or market research per se. I'm really thinking about consumers as a vector for transition and decarbonization. So that's, you know, attitudes to climate change and energy and transport technologies and how their behavior is affecting the pace of change and the speed of decarbonization. This is a topic that I'm keenly interested in, but I think you have a much bigger theme within this, which is how do all those little actions that are leading us closer, but not 
personally actually there in many regards to net zero, how does that have a potentially larger impact on the political and corporate environment that we all exist in? So let's start by asking, what is a political consumer, which is a deliberate term that you used throughout your research on this topic? A political consumer changes over time for each topic. And so when we think about climate change, it starts off as a pretty fringe group of society caring about a topic right at the edge of the social radar, climate change or different environmental issues. But over time, those ideas become more mainstream around emission reduction or around the emissions related to meat consumption, for example. And as they do, obviously the population involved, the populace that cares about this topic grows and enters what we call the lifestyle politics of that minority. And still it keeps growing and growing and suddenly there's critical mass of political landscape that changes the commercial landscape as well, where companies see an opportunity in catering to this growing minority, soon to be a majority, by offering new products and services and thinking about their own supply chains and how they need to evolve to not be called out. Within this, you created a bit of a framework in which to think about what are the different things that political consumers actually can and are doing currently and where those might actually exist within the climate change space, because that is a specific lens you're looking at it with. Will you talk a little bit about that framework with us? Political consumerism as a concept has existed for many decades now. And there's examples of political consumerism dating back to British settlement in India and different trade disputes through the environmental movement of the 1950s, 60s, 70s. The framework has been used for many different issues before, but really what we've done here in this piece of research is, is apply it to climate change. The four ways that consumers can act in response to political matters are defined as, as boycotts. Pretty simple. You choose not to consume a product or a product group or a brand. They can be boycotts. That's B-U-Y-Cots. I mean, those boycotts are a little bit different. Sometimes it involves ring fencing, only buying products that are certified green power or certified B Corp, for example. Or it could be more broader than that, by cots of solar storage or technologies of, of Tesla. Then you've got discursive actions. And this is really not so much about what you buy or what you don't buy, but it's about how you communicate your consumption choices. It's about imposing those beliefs on others, generally by making fun of a corporation, a brand or a politician, and they're, you know, in many cases, greenwashing. And finally, you've got lifestyle choices. These lifestyle choices can encompass everything, but it's where you see cohorts of the population, avoiding flying, avoiding meats, electrifying their homes, or you know, in some cases going off grid. So let's dive in a little bit on the discursive actions part, because I think that's one that might be very new to us conceptually, or at least, we, you know what, I'm not going to speak for other people. It's new to me conceptually, but it's something that actually, now that you bring it up, it is really obvious that it's we're surrounded by it because we live in this increasingly technology-filled world where we spend an inordinate amount of time actually interacting on our phones and looking at different messaging, not just advertising, but like different people's agendas on whether it be Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or a variety of other much hipper apps that I'm sure people younger than me actually use. So what is an example of something that we might see that like a, a polluter parodying is one of the areas that you looked at or social media movements? Would something like a meat-free Monday be considered a social media movement? I consider that a, li a lifestyle action in many cases where you're engaging a certain population or community in changing their behavior. When we think about discursive actions, we're thinking more about a way of picking an antagonist and really reversing the script on them. 
And we see this all around, actually. There's been as much discursive actions, I think, as there has been greenwashing. It's, you know, plague climate discussions for years. But, you know, an example would be if you walk around any of the cop cities and most recently Glasgow, you'll see billboards posted across the city, you know, really calling out brands like NatWest, like Shell, like Standard Chartered, uh, Jaguar Land Rover for their, you know, what's perceived or conveyed to be their greenwashing and their false script on the action they're taking on climate change. There actually was a Twitter bot on International Women's Day when people activated the bot by tagging it to a Twitter feed where someone said, happy Women's Day, their gender pay gap number was automatically inserted by the Twitter bot. That be considered a discursive action? Yeah, I would think so. You know, they're really innovative. They're engaging. They're normally comical. They're not going to appeal to everybody. They are really just about getting a message out there to the already believers uh, and potentially highlighting a problem to others. So undiscursive actions, they're almost always intended to send a signal to the company that they're specifically talking about. And yes, there is a, a public sentiment element to it where you're trying to rally others. But you're also sending a very deliberate message to either consumer or political group. Yeah, I think that's right. So clearly the main audience here is the climate engaged and the, the company being targeted. And it's the pressure there, C-suite and executive, to make it just the change to the behavior. As you said before, they're monitoring their socials to, to see how much negative feedback there is. If these, you know, engaging billboards and tweets and marketing campaigns get picked up by mass media and send around, you know, viewed by, by thousands or hundreds of thousands of millions of people, then suddenly that's extremely powerful and potentially more powerful than their own branding in many cases, their own marketing efforts. And there's the expectation that there will be a response. It's a distraction to their core business. And the way of, of avoiding that is, is to change. Now for a very short break, stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. One of the things that I read recently was about the tagging within social media. So let's say Instagram, a negative Instagram post. And it was in the tens of thousands, not hundreds of thousands, where a negative reaction to something actually started to get a response from the marketing team, essentially at that company, and then would escalate it upward. So getting 
the eyes of a company on their consumers, which, you know, the most important stakeholders in many respects, is actually something that happens more quickly than you might think because they're quite sensitive to what it is those consumers think about, particularly in the consumer discretionary space, how they're tied to that brand. But let's talk a second, actually, about the boycotts and boycotts. So we're thinking boycotts are the things we don't boycotts are the things we do buy and what sort of market signals those may send. But how about lifestyle choices? How would you say lifestyle choices differ from these boycotts and boycotts? They're generally a bit more all-encompassing. So it's not just about buying a certified carbon neutral product. It's about changing your lifestyle, obviously, and being inconvenienced in order to make your point. The flight shaming movement out of Northern Europe is a classic example here. Vegan and vegetarianism, where it is tied to a driver, are examples of lifestyle movements. As I mentioned earlier, you could trace this back to uh, far more fringe groups, you know, living off grid or in isolated communities, living an environmentally friendly lifestyle. So in this, we have identified the different things that people are and can do within within this space in order to influence. But my question really is, how do we measure it? And what sorts of things do you look at to see whether or not these are significant things to be watched by the political and corporate environment? I tend to measure things through survey. And surveys are a fraught beast in that, you know, what people say and what people do is not always the same thing, certainly. There's an age-old saying that perception is reality. So really, as a forward indicator, perception of how people view companies, of how people view policies and politicians will shape their reality more so than, you know, data of what has happened in the past. And through that lens, we can see the number of people who are adopting different technologies for different reasons, for example, through survey, or the number of people who have positive or negative opinions of a politician, of a policy, of a corporation or of a corporate action. And it all informs a view of consumer driver and how much activity and behavior might just be economic and rational and how much might be, you know, taking us into account some sort of other X factor or disengagement of the political discourse. What are some of the more interesting surveys that you've looked at as of late? I highlight the surveys have flagged a couple of problems in the way we talk about climate change. Generally speaking, the surveys highlight that climate change and the environment are conflated and one and the same. Water pollution is treated the same as coal emissions. And therefore, the symptoms, causes and solutions of climate change are really not, not obvious to people. And their actions, their spending, their actions might be totally misdirected toward what they feel are activities that will benefit the climate in some way. There's certainly willingness or increased willingness to pay for those products and solutions. But if you don't know where to spend the money or if you're misguided on where to spend the money, we're obviously getting some poor outcomes. Let's talk a little bit about the political part of it. The term is political consumer. And what we've talked about thus far, you brought up politicians, but I'm really seeing this as much more sending signals to companies, in particular, again, in the consumer and consumer discretionary space. How does this influence politicians and how closely are they watching boycotts, boycotts, lifestyle choices in terms of how they're not just formulating policy, which is really important, but also forming their platform for election and re-election? Yeah, let's talk about companies first. And clearly within political consumerism, the company can be the antagonist. It can be the target on that billboard that, that is made a mockery of because of their greenwashing. They can also be the consumer. And at the final stage of political consumerism, really, when you're going through those fringe groups of society into a larger minority, into the majority, the corporations ultimately need to change as well and pressure their supply chain and they become the catalyst of change. 
to become the, the, the force here. I think political consumerism is pretty apparent to me. Within my time at BNF, I have recalcitrant governments have followed me around, I suppose. You know, I, I started here uh, in Australia shortly within a year or so. The Tony Abbott was elected uh, prime minister and quickly tore up the, uh, the carbon pricing regime that we had in place at the time. I moved to the US within a year. Donald Trump was elected, tore up the clean power plan and drew from the Paris Accord. With each of those events, the immediate local reaction was, oh, we're moving enormously backwards. There's three, four years of backwards stepping on climate change and climate policy before there's any hope of change. And actually what we saw in both cases in Australia and in the US, some of the most recalcitrant administrations we've seen in the Western world is that some slack, and not all, but some slack was taken up by consumers and corporations taking action, and cities and organisations and others as well. But they took up the slack as a message to those politicians that we still care. In Australia, you know, when that carbon pricing regime was torn up, we had no carbon policy there for a while. We had front page news stories saying that we had the highest power prices in the world. It was attributed by the politicians to carbon pricing, but really it's pretty obvious to everybody now that it was uh, network spending and a very high exchange rate, very strong dollar that was leading to those record power prices. But that didn't change the, the social impression that it was that it was climate policy. And the action that was taken by many consumers was to say, we're still going to invest in solar. We're going to invest in solar either because we don't like our power company for price gouging us or for not taking climate action, or we don't like this government again for not taking climate action. That wasn't everybody that installed solar. It was around a fifth, 20% of customers installed as a political message. Around four fifths was economics driven and they admitted so. It is a significant minority, 20% of the population. In the US, you have very similar stories when you have the kind of the we are still in it movement that was started after Trump announced he would withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement and you got cities, states, colleges, churches, everyone saying we will commit to a pathway consistent with one and a half degree uh, warming uh, and take action toward it. And some of those actions were economic anyway, but many weren't. Many you know, were two or three years ahead of the economics really making sense on such a pledge. And yet they made that decision anyway. And that maintained the political pressure such that not all was lost. Now for a very short break. Stay with us. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. <laughs> making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. One of the things I think that we see very clearly in our analysis across the varied teams that we have at BNEF is that 
there is no one single thing that is the most important thing. There is uh, this kind of concept that generally you have this archway and each stone is interdependent on each other to hold each other up. And I know that this is definitely one of those, the political consumer space as it interrelates then with politics and with companies. But specifically, as we head now into what is a progressed high inflation environment and some of these technologies, as you're pointing out, technologies are actually products that are considered to be greener, cleaner. Adoption may slow down as people have less discretionary income to spend on these things or spare income to spend on kind of things that are more expensive. How important is the political consumer space in driving change because you referenced that at some point it picked up the slack when, you know, the politics backed away from looking at this in certain geographies. Will we be able to have the same progress on reaching certain climate goals if this ends up becoming a decreasing element of, I guess, the change nexus that we're looking at? Inflation is a good place to start, actually, because it's obviously a contemporary topic. And I think it will drive change. When people drive past and see you know, fuel prices they haven't seen ever or haven't seen in at least 10 years, they're going to make decisions. Very few, I would argue, are going to do the calculation and work out whether an EV makes sense for them today. But enough will be outraged at the fact that politicians are still levying fuel excises on them whilst petrol prices are so high, or outraged that fuel companies are price gouging them you know, oblivious to the greater, you know, macro picture. And they'll make a decision to purchase an electric vehicle regardless. Now that might not be driven by climate. Maybe it will be a factor. I'm sure there is political consumerism going on right now around inflation and particularly energy inflation with climate benefit. That's a really good point because I'm thinking about the high gas prices at the moment and then this whole discussion around heat pumps and how difficult in some geographies they can be to install. And actually, I know a few people who are essentially pushing extra hard through that paperwork given the current economic and political climate around what is, you know, fraught pipelines of natural gas from Eastern to, to Western Europe. I was thinking about it as people probably would spend less on greener things, but you raise a really good point. It may spur additional action in other areas. They need to be able to afford it, so certainly. So that's, that point is not lost. Uh, but given the capability to afford to make that decision, and we're talking about, you know, fr fringe to, to, to larger minorities of the population here. You know, action will not always be driven by economics. It will be driven by a political statement or a statement to corporations that the status quo isn't working and change needs to happen. So you've got a couple of case studies in here that I think are, are worth highlighting. So maybe we could go into those in some detail. But let's talk about California households and the bycots of PV, so photovoltaic home solar and backup batteries in some regards, which I, I know have become useful as a alternative to backup generators. There have been some power outages that have continued over the last few years in California, specifically due to things like fires and winds. What has happened in California? That's a sophisticated bycott market, is it not? I think it is. I think it is of, of multiple technologies, but, you know, the conflation of different events around, you know, around the period of 2019 to 2018 was really interesting in California because clearly you had solar already economic in for most consumers. You had storage really being pushed and new intensities in place. So economic drivers improving, but beyond that, the political landscape had just changed. You know, Trump is in his second year in office and in the coming of 2017, 2018, he's announced he's going to withdraw from the Paris Climate Agreement. 
And meanwhile, California faced its most destructive wildfire season ever. You know, 47 lives were lost, 10,000 buildings or more were destroyed. And there was a bit of a movement there. You know, there was strong uptake in solar storage to go off grid. Those fires, plus some other liabilities incurred by the local power company, Pacific Gas and Electric, ultimately led to their bankruptcy. So suddenly you have these two antagonists, you have PG&E, and you had a federal government who was moving backward on climate change. And meanwhile, you're facing what you see as the most destructive and cataclysmic climate event in history. It was only a year later that there were more wildfires and more damage, and the political response was to that Trump criticized the Californian authorities for not raking the forest. So when there's that sort of political discourse, there is going to be consumer action. It helped that the economics were great. Of course it did. But you saw these other nudges. And in consumer and behavioral science, we always talk about nudges. And the political nudge here was actually to do nothing or to pretend it wasn't a problem. And that was enough of a nudge for the engaged and the educated to make a decision to adopt technology. Then let's talk also about another case study that you referenced a little earlier regarding, in the Nordics, flight shaming. And some airlines have seen it as a threat. Other airlines have actually taken it head on. So KLM launched this Fly Responsibly campaign that actually addresses and embraces a little bit this flight shaming mentality that's going on at the moment. What sort of changes have the surveys that you looked at, how have people responded to this? And is this pressure or, you know, potentially virtue signaling, is it working and is it changing people's patterns? Flight shaming, or at least flight avoidance, is larger than people expect. And the flight shaming movement was a very Northern European movement at first, a little bit elitist. It was a bunch of local celebrities, you know, talking about their boycott of plane travel because of emissions. It spread across Western Europe, but really we're seeing signs for all around the world now. For example, in the UK, the majority, 57 of Britons now say they have already or are likely to avoid traveling by plane on, on holidays. You see even similar numbers in, in China smaller numbers in Japan, but an awareness that short distance flying, short distance aviation creates emissions and can be avoided. Follow through is more difficult to measure, especially during the last two or three years when the aviation sector has been wiped out. So it's a bit too early to know, but this was very much on the forefront of, of airlines, minds and dialogues going in COVID. You mentioned KOM. That fly responsibly campaign is particularly interesting because they're basically asking travelers to consider not flying at all and using something else. Most other airlines really just present you carbon offset options or, you know, fly carbon neutral options. They're not trying to turn away uh, your business. Across Europe, we see a number of organizations banning short distance flights for their employees. Lots of universities, the BBC, Greater London Authority all ban employees from traveling. We see Deloitte, for example, making a major investment in Lightyear. Lightyear is a, a, a company out of the Netherlands that makes solar powered cars, which Deloitte will be one of the first uh, customers of to move their em employees across continental Europe. Seeking out alternatives, because again, you know, corporations are kind of the final mover here. They think about their supply chain. They think about where criticism is going to come from in the future and they're taking action. You referenced carbon offsets and then said, you know, playing carbon neutral on that. But we have a whole another episode with Kyle Harrison about the offset space and how incredibly fraught the additionality of those offsets can be. But I don't want to digress too much there. Let's go into one final example while we're on the show today about Brazilian products and how that may have an impact on the Amazon rainforest and you know, what people are actually doing and how they're tying specific products to that geographic space and that ecosystem. 
This is a really fascinating example. And as a current example, right, before I'd mentioned Australia, I mentioned the US and California, where that political dynamics passed in many cases, in, in most cases. In Brazil, it's still very much happening. And you've got a, a, a president, Bolsonaro, there who has been skeptical and critical of climate action since his inauguration. And, you know, not a lot of pressure, not a lot of accountability from the Brazilian people. One, because it's very difficult to take action against what is really, in many cases, illegal operations, clearing the Amazon. And secondly, because, you know, protest is fraught with danger, potentially. So what instead you see is that the supplier chain, you see corporations taking action for their customers and their constituents on the opposite side of the world. An example here would be a group of supermarkets around the world. It included, you know, Audi and Asta and Tesco and Woolworths from Australia, pressuring their concern to the Brazilian government around a proposal that, uh, that they say would lead to further deforestation. And they basically threatened to stop buying all products that were tied to the Brazilian agricultural supply chains. Enormous impacts further upstream, obviously, if they were to do so. They're advocating basically on their behalf of customers in Europe, in Australia, uh, and elsewhere to say, our consumers won't stand for this, even if your consumers in Brazil haven't or can't take action. We've seen it from European banks deciding to divest from meat producers or tied to deforestation in Brazil and really distributed action on the other side of the world, forcing some level of change in, in Brazil. So Hugh, this brings me to a point regarding who and specifically where are these political consumers really prevalent? And this is going to vary geography to geography, probably for a variety of reasons, including culture and discretionary income. But where are we seeing high percentages of individuals within some of these surveys that you looked at that are willing and interested in engaging in being a political consumer? So one thing I've looked at here is to compare the willingness of people to pay more for products that are good for environment. Again, they conflate environment and climate and their intention to actually buy more sustainable products. And what we see is a bit of a mismatch there. So Many countries, many affluent countries, Germany, US, UK, Australia, consumers say they are willing to pay more for products. They can afford it. They're willing to pay more for products that they see good for the environment. But it's much more varied when it comes to intention. It's universally lower. Fewer people will intend to buy more sustainable products than are willing to, say, to pay more for them. In some cases, that's stark. So in Australia, for example, you know, you've got over half the population says they're willing to pay more, but only about a third intends to buy more. So they were the wealthy countries you're talking about, but that's not always the case. Clearly there's plenty of countries where consumers just don't have the income, the ability, the financial stability to make these, to make altruistic choices whatsoever. And in others, it really comes down to the ability to be an activist. And for example, in India, which you know could well be painted as the prior of the last cop, given they, they, they made the discussions go on for the last two days. Climate activism is really not part of the social discourse, so potentially not even a part of the, the political thinking and priorities in, in addressing climate change. So, Hugh, there are certain supply chains and certain parts of the supply chain which are invariably going to be more responsive to end consumers like people like you and I than others. In what areas is the consumer voice a really important and critical part of moving towards a decarbonized future? And what areas where it really is going to come down to 
politics and the companies themselves looking at things differently and consumers maybe don't have as much of an influence. And I think as a second question onto that, personally, where should I spend my time? It's an awesome question. I like to think that consumers can do three things. They can either buy something, change a product, produces lower emissions. They can change their behavior and not necessarily need to buy anything, or they can stop consuming and that will almost certainly lower emissions in a greater way than all the other two options. Failing that, you need the supply chain to decarbonize that, that supplies consumers. And remember, you know, you could tie back two thirds of three quarters of emissions uh, can be tied back to household consumption at the end of the day. We are generally producing something for someone who needs to produce something for a household. So when you think about the sectors that are really reliant on consumer action, Road transport or all passenger transport is extremely reliant on consumer action. We either need consumers to buy electric vehicles and replace their ICEs or to forego driving or to move from vehicles into public transit, microbit mobility and pedestrian alternatives. Without that, without consumers changing behavior or products, there will no, be no decarbonization in road transport, riding off biofuels and, and other options that, you know, that the supply chain could do. But when you think about something like aviation, consumers have no alternative. They can stop flying potentially if it's a, a short pole flight and there's alternatives available, but that's going to be a fairly minority of people in dense markets like where you're sitting in London. It's going yeah. to be nobody where I'm sitting in Australia. So really the, we're, we're totally reliant on the uh, airline supply chain, the aviation supply chain, to build lighter aircraft, create uh, lower emission, you know, lower fuel consumption planes, and invest in alternatives, invest in hydrogen or electric or whatever the alternatives might be, because consumers won't have that, don't have that ability. And then, you know, when across the power sector, kind of, it, you need both. Consumers need to be buying the electric appliances such that the you know, decarbonized electricity system can provide them with clean power. If you don't get both of those things, you still have emissions, you know, stemming from heat, from cooking, from, from other oil, gas, and solid fuel use. So consumers are a massive vector of change. They're needed. Really the question here is around how do they engage with politicians? How do politicians engage with them to support that transition? When you look at the emissions in your home, the, the bulk are coming from heat. Aviation's a big factor as well. So you need to decide whether there is a product substitution that will allow you to go about your lifestyle or whether you're willing to be inconvenienced or abstain from consumption. And at the moment, that comes down to an economic versus a lifestyle decision. But in the future, that doesn't necessarily have to be the case. Gosh, I think all roads lead to heat in so many respects, both in the residential and in the uh, industry heat space. So hopefully my friend who is looking at that heat pump will help bring prices down and increase skilled labor to actually look at heat pumps to build a potentially more sustainable home environment for all of us in the future uh, and bring those costs down of that technology. In the meantime, thank you, Hugh, for keeping an eye on different consumer behaviors. We look forward to speaking with you again sometime soon regarding what the surveys are telling us around consumer adoption. Thanks, Dana. Appreciate it. Today's episode of Switched On was edited by Rex Warner of Greystoke Media and produced by Ava Marina Gonzalez-Isla at BNEF. Bloomberg NEF is a service provided by Bloomberg Finance LP and its affiliates. This recording does not constitute nor should it be construed as investment advice, investment recommendations, or a recommendation as to an investment or other strategy. Bloomberg NEF should not be considered as information sufficient upon which to base an investment decision. Neither Bloomberg Finance LP nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability of this recording is expressly disclaimed.
your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.